Are you just messing with me? No, I swear to God, I'm not. <laughs> Welcome to this episode of Professors, a podcast about movies, music, history, pop culture, current events, and literature, all discussed with the perspective of women's issues and feminism. I'm Allegra. And I'm Misty. And today we have our first interview ever. And we start out strong because we've got two New York Times bestselling authors on the podcast. We are very excited about this and we really hope you enjoy it. Well, thank you both for joining us. We are super excited. Thank you. Yeah, it's our pleasure. This is great. And I know that you're busy this month promoting your book. Although it's probably a pretty unusual book tour. Yeah, very. In that you don't leave your house, I'm guessing. Yes, the virtual world. I'm Allegra. I am an English professor. And Misty is a history professor. And we usually talk about feminist women's issues as they appear in literature, history, sometimes TV. And we just recorded an episode about suffrage. So this is just basically perfect for us. So we're super excited. Yeah, it's a good companion piece. That's ideal. We are joined today by two authors, Fiona Davis and MJ Rose. MJ Rose is the New York Times bestselling author of historical fiction and has also written books about writing and publishing. Her most recent book was chosen as an indie next pick and People Magazine top pick. It takes place during the Gilded Age in New York City. And Fiona Davis is a New York Times bestselling author of historical novels, including The Dollhouse, which we discussed on our episode 21 on female investigative journalists and her most recent novels, The Lions of Fifth Avenue, which we discussed on our suffrage episode a few weeks ago. So clearly we're fans. <laughs> Wonderful. I love it. Um, together, they have edited the new collection of short stories, Stories from Suffragette City, which focuses on one day in the history of women's suffrage in the United States, October 23rd, 1915, the day of the suffrage parade in New York City, when about 25,000 women marched. Many of the stories include historical figures such as Ida B. Wells, Alice Paul, and Mabel Pinghao Lee, who were also on our recent episode. This book, which is available as of last month, includes short stories by Fiona and MJ, as well as 10 other authors. Thank you both for joining us on this podcast and for taking time to talk to us about this book. I really enjoyed how there were just little pieces of history woven into the fictional narrative. Um, I love the part with the orphan trains. I like that the Armenian genocide was mentioned. Race and class issues are brought up. I thought that was great. Thank you. Thank of you. Course. Yeah, it was fun to, it was fun to compile them. Uh, and I agree. I think the atmospheric details, the context that we get from the book, it gives me a much broader perspective. I know less about history, of course, than Misty does. Um, and she doesn't really love it that I get <laughs> history information from fiction. But really, there's a lot we can learn in this book. And there's a lot of access points for people to relate to different characters in a collection like this one. So first question, in the acknowledgments, you say that this book began when you took a flight home together from Literature Lovers Night Out. Can you tell us what that conversation was like and what you really wanted for the book? Sure. Um, so we were at this event and there was a windstorm the next day. And so the hotel and the car driver and everybody told us we had to get to the airport really early. So we had three hours at the airport in a, in a small airport with nothing to do. And we started 
talking about books we liked and anthologies we'd read. And before you know it, two authors alone in an airport and you have a book. <laughs> so by the time we got on the plane, we'd already started Googling. And while we were on the plane seated separately, we kept Googling and we had both had internet on the plane. So we were texting each other ideas. And by the time we had off the plane walking to baggage, Fiona came up with the title. And by the time we got home, it was I think it was a Saturday. By Monday, our agents had the proposal. They worked on it for a couple of days and they sold it within a week. And it was all so fast and so exciting. And I think we just really wanted to talk about and commemorate and really draw attention to what an enormous um, struggle it was to get the vote and how important it is to vote and to bring a little bit of that history to life through this book. I wanted to ask you guys a little bit about the process of writing historical fiction. I do academic history writing, so that means lots of trips to the archives and primary sources. Does that look the same for you guys? Um, yeah, definitely. I, you know, MJ and I were both lucky in that we both happened to be working on books that took place in the 1910s. Um, and so we could, you know, use some of that information in our in our own stories in terms of what people were wearing and, you know, what the city looked like. And when we reached out to the other authors to take part, we made sure we gave them as much historical background as we could, links to articles that were in the New York Times about the the parade. Um, you know, everything we could do so that everybody felt like the, these, this story, which takes place on the same day, all these stories that they all felt like a cohesive whole. When I was reading through the book, it struck me that it wasn't just a book written by female authors, which is what I thought I was going to be reading. So I think it's great that you guys had three male authors that were included and that some of the stories also have a male perspective. Can you just talk to us about what that was like and what the decision was made there to include that different point of view from suffrage that we don't usually see? Sure. Well, um, it was something that Fiona and I were both aware of from the research we were doing ourselves, that there was an enormous amount of support for women in the suffrage movement from men. I mean, there was a men's group for women's suffrage in New York that was very active and was filled with very important men. And at the same time, there were obviously a lot of men who were totally against the idea of women getting the vote. So I think it was instantaneous. I don't even think we had to discuss it. We always knew from the beginning that to tell the story of the fight of women to get the vote and this parade, we wanted to include men and get their perspective. So um, I don't think that, the, and the men who we invited were thrilled and all accepted right away. That, that whole thing with the authors was fabulous. We had a very long list of authors that we were going to invite and um, everybody we called, we got, everybody said yes right away. We never got through the whole list. We had assumed that we'd pick 50 and maybe we'd get 10 and we picked 50 and we never even got to write to 40 of them. Wow. Wow. So I guess everyone was interested. You picked a good topic. I, I yeah, think people, people felt strongly. Yeah. And I think everyone knew it would be timely if it was coming out this year. And also it, it just goes to show MJ knows a lot of people and, you know, she, she's made a lot of wonderful contacts and it, it's a testament to MJ that of that response. It was really, really incredible. Yeah. You're one of those super connectors. <laughs> yes. But Fiona had her own people that she connected to her in the book. So she's being way too kind. <laughs> 
That's actually one of our questions was it came out 100 years after the 19th Amendment, of course, and 105 almost to the day after the parade. But it's also very timely and relevant um, to readers today. Can you talk about some of those ideas? Well, the publisher actually said when this when it went around to the publishers, the publishers all commented on the fact that they were going to publish very little in the weeks leading up to the election, that they expected to pull their list way back and do, you know, summer and later fall, but nobody wanted to compete with the election, except that they felt that if there was any book that they could publish, our, our own publisher said this, if there's any book we can publish in October, it will be this book. So it was a very conscious effort on the publisher's part to have this come out, not only on the 100th anniversary, but very close to this election. And, and also, I think a lot of the themes in the book are so important today. And so reading it, you realize, wow, some things haven't changed. So there's stories that feature immigrants. Um, it's about class differences. There's, um, it's a mix of real and fictional characters. Some are very wealthy, some are absolutely not. And so I, we hope as, as readers read it, they see how kind of, you know, things have changed and also how they haven't. And it can be a marker for that, that kind of analysis. And the, the book's dedication says for the women of the past who fought so hard for the 19th Amendment and those who continue fighting today to secure voting rights for all, it seems to really just point out right from the start, the 19th Amendment was a great accomplishment, but also we're acknowledging it didn't eradicate inequities and it didn't give universal suffrage or voter access. And that was intentional. Well, it was just intentional to tell the truth about what happened. You know, Fiona and I both write similar historical fiction in that we don't take the history and radically change it. We, we use a lot of real people mixed in with our fictional people, and we use a lot of very real um, time periods. And, you know, there's different kinds of historical fiction. Ours isn't very fantasy-oriented. It's very much rooted in reality. So that's what this book was also. And, and also there, you know, you have a character, Mabel Lee, in Jamie Ford's book, and he notes in the end in his author's note that as a Chinese woman, she couldn't vote until 1943. And then you have Ida B. Wells Barnett in Dolan Perkins Valdez's story, um, who's not marching in the 1915 parade because um, black women were, were kind of, you know, prevented from marching. Um, and, and so... By, by seeing that, you can see how tough it was for, for everyone to, to actually get the right to vote. And then you think today, where there's so much going on in terms of vote suppression, um, we hope that that will you know, make people take note of that, that this is still going on. As you said, it didn't solve everything. Sorry, guys. My dog fell asleep on my lap and he was snoring. <laughs> 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 So several of the stories um, talk about voting is being more than just voting. It offers physical or economic or legal protection to women. Can you guys just talk to us about that idea about voting being more than just voting? Yeah, sure. I, I mean, I think what it is is that by by having a voice and being able to have a have a say in in you know your future. Is, is so important. And that's what in the book we're hoping will we'll bring that out, that it's not just placing a vote, it's about having a say in your future, in your children's future. And I think there was also a psychological 
um, thing about that, that if women could vote, it gave them a power in their marriages, in their relationships, in their families. It was one more place they were not subservient. You know, one more little thing that gave them some equality on a long, hard road to getting more equality. I'm nodding very vigorously. <laughs> very vigorously. <laughs> um, and as you pointed out, the suffrage movement suffered from a lack of intersectionality and inclusion. Um, why was putting all of those voices back into the narrative important to you? Well, I think uh, people don't know. I think that one of the things that was so interesting to us was how many people don't realize how difficult it was and how many women weren't even included in that first effort. And I know that, you know, the Central Park sculpture that I talk about a lot because um, I had told Fiona the story. This actually how our whole conversation started was a friend of mine had just been chosen to do the first sculpture in Central Park that is of real women as opposed to fairy tale. There's Alice in Wonderland and there's Mother Goose and then there are 50 real men and a dog in Central Park. <laughs> and the Girl Scouts of America started raising money to build the first sculpture in Central Park of real live women. And it, it is three women. It was um, Hillary Clinton was at the opening of the sculpture and the dedication. And what was so amazing was it was a huge problem because people didn't realize that it was a mostly white uh, it was actually not only white, it was rich white women who's got this started. Fiona writes about that in her story. And in my story, the wife of Charles Tiffany, of Tiffany and Company, and Fiona's story, um, Alva Vanderbilt, were the main, were part of the Mink Brigade, which were very, which, very rich women who started the suffrage movement in New York and really funded it. But most people don't realize how controversial it women were even among other women. So it was very important to have that in the book. It wasn't, it wasn't all fruit and flowers. Yeah, it was, it was important to remember that kind of the legacy of black suffragists like Mary Church Terrell, Sojourner Truth, Harriet Tubman, um, who, who were marginalized because a lot of the white suffragists were trying to court the Southern vote and Southern politicians. And, um, and we're, we're, really actually stopped from marching in certain parades. And they didn't want Jews either. And they didn't want Irish women either. I mean, they, they, were, they were pretty <laughs> tough on everybody. And, and that's, you know, it's sad. I mean, obviously it's changed, but it, it was really there. And were there particular historical figures whose narratives or whose perspectives you definitely just from the outset, you wanted to make sure you included those people? You know, I knew I wanted to talk about um, Alva Vanderbilt Belmont just because she was such an interesting figure and, and a real leader, um, but also a real a complex woman. And so I knew that, but, but really we let everyone decide whoever they wanted to choose as their main character, whether fictional or non-fictional. Um, we left it up to the authors and they're, they're such good authors that it ended up being a wide variety of perspectives and stories that are, you know, exciting and some that are sad and and we hope bring up all these different emotions so you can see so many perspectives from from that one day and that one time. Yeah, and that that was actually going to be another question we had was how um, was was really the endnotes do a great job of kind of taking a step out and saying here are 
they're all true to the time and place. Um, but some were based on real people and some were based on, on fictional people. And I, that's a lesson I teach my creative writing students is, you know, how fiction can lead people to the truth. And so, uh, I ap appreciate really that there's a mix of, of real people and fictional people, but both are giving us that, that context and that access point to, 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 to the event and the parade and, and the, the fight for women's suffrage. Yeah, that's what that's what we we love to do. I mean, personally, I love to find historical figures and and really do the historical research and use that as a kind of the, the real truth behind it as a way to layer on a, a fictional story. So you know, Alfred Vanderbilt, my story is saying things that she might not have said, but she might have said, and mm -hmm. inside her mind, so you can hopefully understand where she came from. So um, one of the stories that really stood out to me was we shall take our lives into our own keeping. And the thing that really just stuck out to me so much, I think, especially coming out of all of the news from the last few years is about the harassment women were facing in the workplace. So I just wanted to ask you guys about putting a very timely issue and having to transport yourself out of your 21st century mind and how a character in the 1900s would deal with this situation, which we still face today, but in a different way. MJ, do you want to take that? Uh, yeah, I think, well, I don't know. Um, Fiona, you can add to this, but I think this is true of all historical fiction. And Fiona has a great quote about it that I don't, I'm not going to remember, but the time was different and the facts were different, but people are the same. And people react to things in a lot of the same ways. And so I think that we all had... Certainly this wasn't that long ago, and I don't think it was that difficult to put ourselves into the mindsets of these women, because I think especially right now, we all feel so hamstrung and worried about our rights being taken away from us in so many ways. So I didn't, you know, in all the authors and talking to all the authors, nobody ever said, oh, God, I had such a hard time putting myself in this mindset the way. I mean, I once wrote um, one of my books has something to do with ancient Egypt. And I had an incredibly hard time putting myself in that time frame. There were so many cultural differences. But we look, there's a piece of footage that's running around the internet now. Somebody took a film from New York in 1911 and digitized it so it runs at the right speed and they put some sounds behind it. And I was struck, it's about six minutes long, it's incredible. And I was struck at how similar things were 110 years ago as opposed to how different. Yes, there were different cars, but there were cars. Men look practically the same, except they all wore hats. Women's clothes are drastically different. But you see people walking down the street and living their lives, and you realize that it's just the outside that changes, not the inside. And also in, in the 1910s, there was the, the whole new woman was going on where um, women were trying to redefine themselves and searching for equality and financial independence. And there was this real movement for women um, to, you know, learn more about birth control and, you know, what were their rights and the suffrage movement was all part of that. And so in a way, it's kind of wonderful to see this woman's movement and think back to the, you know, the parade that we we all marched in four years ago and, and how, in fact, as I was writing the story, I was remembering what it was like to march in the women's parade 
and and that that feel of that energy and and it's a reminder that there are cycles and we move forward and we move move back but hopefully we have more forward momentum than backward hopefully Hopefully, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we'll find out. <laughs> and I, I mean, I love that that both of you in, in not just in this book, but in your writing, place a real emphasis on on bringing women's voices to the forefront. And so, these stories that maybe were marginalized or, at the very least, not emphasized the same way, we get to see those perspectives and we get to see those voices. And I'm, I'm wondering if that's if that's a creative or a strategic decision, right. To say, I, I want to set out to bring these voices to the forefront or it just happens as a part of your creative process. Maybe both. I think, you know, authors are, are drawn to people who have obstacles in front of them um, because that's more interesting to write about a character who is fighting really hard for something as someone who, you know, is just gliding through life. That's not an interesting story. So I think all of our authors were, you know, we're talking about a runaway young Irish girl or an Armenian immigrant. Um, you know, you have these stories of, of people who, who are real underdogs. And I think people are drawn to underdogs. Yeah, that makes me think of the, the very first book, or the very first story in the book. Um, you know, this the, the family and they're selling apples and they're trying to make their very hard to make their way through the world. And it's definitely starts us with that underdog story, but even, um, you know, MJ's story where, you know, they're running through Tiffany's, um, <laughs> <laughs> they're That's underdogs too. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Oh man, when the lamp goes crashing to the ground, <laughs> I just felt, I, I think I gasped. <laughs> and and I, what I loved about that was that I know everybody who's reading it can picture exactly what kind of lamp it is because <laughs> those, right, those lamps are so famous now. It was a really like little fun part for me. It was like, I know everybody knows what a Tiffany lamp looks like. I didn't have to describe it. And everyone would be horrified to break one. <laughs> yeah, especially now because of what they're worth now. At the time, they cost like $25. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I think they cost more than that now. A little more. Uh, and, and honestly, another one of my favorite moments in that story um, is is when the two men are talking and one of them is is in support of the suffrage movement and one of them is not. And they're talking about their daughter's participation. Um, and I think it's kind of a great moment where you see a male ally using his position of relative privilege to try and speak to another man about the women's movement. Yeah. And, and that's particularly exciting to me because it's true. Um, I found out that, that George Kuntz was exactly as described. He was, the, he was Cartier, the Cartier. He was Tiffany's gemologist and one of the most famous gemologists in the world. He's the man who helped J.P. Morgan put together the mineral collection that makes up the bulk of the Museum of Natural History's Mineral Hall in New York City. And George, George Kuntz became a major... Um, admirer and helper of the suffrage movement and Charles Tiffany who was at the time president of the company who was married to an incredibly important suffragette he was totally against it and it was just so fascinating the reality of this was so fascinating to me and the scene of course is imagined but those were their positions 
And we have a lot of research to prove that George Kuntz was making those pins that we refer to in the story, that he was helping women. He was making jewelry for them outside of Tiffany's offices of, that, that emblazoned suff- the suffrage movement. Wow. Okay. That is exciting. I didn't realize that that much of it was, was, was true. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Um, and Fiona, I want to ask, so several of the stories are very, very New York and um, descriptions of the city in the fall and vivid descriptions of landmarks and characters who really enjoy the city itself. And of course, that's something that recurs, I think, in your books as well. And can you just talk about how and why you think those ideas uh, about the importance of the city itself made their way into the stories? Oh, I think New York's such a character and it's gone through so much even recently. And um, yeah, it's just a place, I think because we're all compressed very closely together, it's a place where ideas are generated and conflict is generated. And, um, and so it does become, no matter what, I think you can't help but make it into a character of its own in a story that takes place here. It's, it's so specific, New York City. It's not like anywhere else. And the energy and the vibrancy and the artistic community is, is pretty incredible. I've never been to New York City. but oh, I feel- you have to come. <laughs> yeah. After the pandemic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not, a, not a great time to come to a very no. crowded, vibrant city, but yes. Yes, I feel like I'm very familiar with historical New York now after reading this book. Right, so if you were transported back in time, you'd be able to find your way around no problem. Exactly, exactly. I mean, your book even has a map, so. Yeah, and actually uh, the map hasn't changed. You could walk those same streets. That None of that's changed. You know, there's certain buildings that won't be there. But New York is, New York is amazingly similar to what it was like in 1911. So as someone who doesn't do any fiction writing at all ever, I have a logistics question. There is this reoccurring character of Grace who pops in and out of all of the, not all of them, but a lot of the different stories. Can you tell me about how you plan that out with other authors and how you make it make sense all in the bigger tale? So what we did was we wanted there to be a little bit of a Letty motif, if anybody wanted to play with it, that would connect the stories to each other a little bit in the reader's mind, just make it really seem like one day. And so um, I wrote my story first and uh, we sent my story to everybody so they could be introduced to Grace. And then it was completely up to them whether they used her or not. Fiona and I had decided we would definitely use her and she would, I would begin her story and Fiona would end her story. And each, it was up to each author. So they had, what she looked like and what she was wearing and everything from me. And then they could or couldn't do anything with her as they chose. And so as you read through the book, you'll see it's really fun. Some authors have her show up and some authors don't. It was completely up to them. Um, We were concerned at one point that not enough authors would use her to make sense of it. But as it turned out enough, just the perfect number of authors used her. So it really, it really worked. You notice her, but you're not overpowered by her. And, and so she goes missing in MJ's story. And it, it adds attention to, the, to reading the stories where you're wondering, is she going to get reunited with her family or not? I like how your story's book ended that tale of grace. It was a really nice touch. I liked it. Thank you. Thank you. We had a lot of fun with that little aspect of it. 
Was Grace uh, a real person? No, no. But what was real was Charles and his wife did not have children. So it fit in very well that they didn't have their own children. And it was really a tragedy in their marriage. But it fit in very well to use somebody who would be a niece. So I teach creative writing um, at our community college, and I have I want to end with just a handful of questions for my students, if you don't mind. Sure, sure. Um, Can you talk about your writing rituals or routines? Do you write every day, and what that looks like? Um, I'll go first, and then Fiona can go. Um, I used to write every single day. But um, I'd say in the last three months, that's all gone to hell in a handbasket because of because <laughs> of the election mostly, and I'm just so preoccupied, and I have to keep turning on the news, and my book is going so slowly. But normally, um, when I'm doing a first draft, I write every day at least two to three hours to get down a really messy first draft, and then I spend the next six to twelve months writing the second, third, fourth, sometimes fifth draft, which is, I love doing all those drafts. And those I can do longer, uh, some days longer, some days shorter. But my real intense period is like four months of putting down that dirty first draft. And before that, there's like six to eight months of research. And it's usually while I'm editing something else that I start working on the next, next book's research. I love that of a dirty first draft. That's so great. Um, I'm I'm very similar in my process where I do a, a very fast first draft that's just awful. And I write about 1,500 words a day, six days a week. And that gets me a first draft in about three or four months. And I do it without looking back. I don't go back and edit. And I, I just highly recommend that because I find if you do that, you'll end up not finishing that draft you get caught up in the pretty words and you just have to get something down. So as MJ says, in those later edits, you can really shape it into something, but you can't shape a blank page. Yeah, I don't go back either at all to the point that when I read the first draft for the first time, I'm usually shocked. I don't remember half of it. I'm like, who wrote this? Because I really, it's not who wrote it because it's so bad or so good. It's like, I don't remember any of it because I don't know if you, if you do this, Fiona, but what I'm doing is I'm literally writing down a movie that I'm seeing playing out in my mind. I turn on Gregorian chants. I've written every book to Gregorian chants. I turn them on and within like 30 seconds, I'm lost. And I'm just writing down what I see in my brain. That's great. Yeah, Gregorian chants. It's weird, isn't it? There's something about them. I might try. I might try that. My next question was, "What are your first drafts like?" Is I mean, and you just described them as as dirty, I guess. <laughs> yeah, messy, awful, terrible. We have so many students who just have this idea that they don't need a rough draft; they can just <laughs> write a finished product. So it's fantastic to hear you guys say that is not true. Oh, I think I have- for me, yeah, I want the plot to make sense. I want the characters to make sense. And you just don't know that until you finish that first draft. You don't, you haven't met your characters yet. And you can only start to develop them after you've met them and got to know them. And that's draft two through 10. Yeah. And I have to read that first draft sometimes four or five times to even understand the hidden story or the hidden themes or the, the secrets I've like given myself in the book that need to be played out because my unconscious is doing things that I'm not even aware of. Wow. And, and so both of you are, are exceptional at writing dialogue. 
And can you share some things that have helped you? I mean, that's a skill. Can you share some things that have helped you develop that skill? I think for me, um, you know, going to plays was really helpful. I was always going to theater in New York. And, and when you're watching a play where dialogue is the only way the playwright can get his point across, there's no description, there's no, you know, omniscient, um, you know, paragraphs. And, and so to me, watching a good play and reading a good play is a real lesson in how to do dialogue. And that helped me a lot. Um, and no, nobody can necessarily just pick up on what happened to me, but I was in advertising and I probably wrote about 300 to 500 commercials in my career before I started working on novels. And writing a commercial is giving somebody a whole little story in 30 seconds with nothing but dialogue or, you know, it pictures, but you don't, you, you have to have dialogue to explain what the pictures are. And so I just learned how to be very succinct with pictures and words. And I think my dialogue's terrible. So I really appreciate you saying that. I think my strength is in my descriptions, but, um, but thank you. But <laughs> no, I think, I mean, I, 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 I was struck by both of you, both of your writing in your, in your novels and in your stories at the dialogue. And that is something that, that students who are just starting writing fiction, they have an idea of what a story should be like. They have, they struggle a lot with dialogue. Um, and so I've, I'm glad, I'm grateful for your advice, which I will pass on to, to oh, my students. Oh, you know, for your students, I have another piece of advice that my agent gave me halfway through my career that really changed my style a lot. When I finish the book, I read it out loud to myself, or I have a computer software program that reads the book out loud to me in one of those like activated voices. Mm -hmm. And I listen, you, you hear it read to you by this activated voice. You really hear every word. And I make so many changes at that stage because things sound so awkward that I thought looked so beautiful. So I really recommend the out loud method. Either read it out loud and tape record yourself and play it back or do the, just the voice, the text to voice recognition on the computer. Wow. Okay. I'm going to try that myself, actually. <laughs> you can do it for nonfiction, too. It's just sort of amazing. It just, it makes you, you hear it like you didn't write it. It's fascinating. Yeah. Um, and that might answer my next question, which is what do you wish you had known uh, when you first started out? Ooh, what a good question. Ooh. Oh, God, my, mine is pathetic. <laughs> um, I, wish, I wish I had known how difficult publishing as a business is. There's a, a phrase that I've like come to use all the time now, but I wish I knew it to start, which is you have to be an optimist in order to believe that you have something to say that's good enough to spend a year to two years to three years saying it. And then you have to become a pessimist because the business is very, very hard. And if you don't become a pessimist and you don't sort of expect nothing, you're going to be broken. And I think if people realize that writing is an art and publishing is a business, then a lot people will go into it and not go into it and be a lot happier and a lot um, more satisfied by the reality of what they're letting themselves in for. And, and I would add on that, that it's okay to not write in your 20s or 30s. It's okay to um, kind of build up your own stories 
in your own life so that you actually have something to say when it when you're ready to write it. For me, I didn't start writing until I was in my late 40s. And and that was only when I actually had something I felt like I wanted to say. And if I'd written or started earlier, it just would have, I think, been a waste of time. I think it's so important to live your life so that you have experiences you can draw on. That is so heartening to hear because I'll tell you, you hear about uh, someone who just graduated from college and sold their first <laughs> novel. And it's kind of <laughs> a little discouraging, I think, for some people. <laughs> Right. I think most people don't. Most people don't do that. And most people I know didn't get published till they were, I was published. I was in my 40s. And most people I know who have careers mm -hmm. didn't get published till they were in their 40s. There are a lot of first time novels that are big splashes and the people never write again, you know. But of people who really have long careers, most people you'll notice didn't start till their late 30s or early 40s or sometime in their 40s. I like how your students are going to ask for 30-year extensions. <laughs> right now, I'm just thinking about myself, and I'm like, okay, I've got a couple years left. All right. <laughs> I mean, just off the top of my head, and these aren't literary people, but Nora Roberts, um, uh, Steve Berry, Lee Child, um, uh, what's the, she just recently died, the big mystery writer, Mary Higgins Clark. All of those people started writing in their late 30s or early 40s. I'm extremely encouraged by that. What do you think women in the, I mean, you, you say publishing is a business. What do you think women should be aware of in that business that they may not be? I think um, just the amazing community that's available. I met, I've met so many incredible women who write historical fiction or women's fiction in New York since I became a writer. And it's a really supportive, wonderful community of women who are, you know, helping each other and supporting each other. And back in the day, we would meet, we would all meet for lunches or, you know. What was people. that? What, what, meeting, lunch? Imagine, <laughs> I remember, remember book, uh, book release parties. Oh my goodness. <laughs> and, and it's just, uh, I, I'm, I'm just surprised by how many wonderful friends I've acquired um, having become a writer. And I also think that women should know that it's a business really run predominantly by women. So there's, there's not a lot of prejudice or problems with being a woman. I, you know, the editors are predominantly women. The publishers are half the publishers are women. So it's really a very female friendly business. Well, and it should be right because more women read books yes. by men than by far. Can you give us a hint about, this is our last question, if, if you would, what you're working on now, what, what you're researching or, or drafting? Well, um, I never talk about what I'm researching now, except that my next book is coming out in February. So it's a book that centers around a real life uh, tiara that was owned by the Romanoffs that is actually missing. And it takes place in uh, Nine, 20, uh, 1917 when someone first got that tiara and 1948 when that woman's daughter uh, discovers it and starts trying to research who owned it and why her mother had it. And it's a wonderful book. It's a great Thank read. You. And uh, I'm working on a, a book set at the Frick Collection, which is a really interesting Gilded Age mansion in New York City on Fifth Avenue with a, a great history. And uh, I've gotten through the dirty first draft and I'm uh, on to about draft three. So we'll see how that goes. <laughs> oh, I can't wait to read it. <laughs> <laughs>
And I love that you read each other's drafts. I uh, That's great. No, okay. finished, finished books, not drafts. Nobody reads my dirty drafts. Nobody. <laughs> <laughs> that's, yeah, no, I, I don't doubt you. I don't fault you for that. Um, well, that's all the questions we have. And I don't want to take up any more of your time. We so appreciate you being with us. Um, and we will hype this book uh, very authentically because I think we both read it voraciously and really, truly enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Thrilled to be on. And, and just thank you so much for, for helping us spread the word. It's terrific. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'm just excited that I'm going to have a book that I can recommend that my students are actually going to read. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Well, thank you. <laughs> great. Thank you so much. It was a Fingers great interview. Crossed. You really did your homework. Oh, yeah. thank, thank you. you. Thank yeah. you for saying that. So, Allegra, what's next in your lady life? So I just got the new Best American Essays for 2020. Are you familiar with the Best American series, Misty? Nope, not even a little bit. Okay, well, uh, Best American series. <laughs> I don't even know what to how to explain it. Um, so it's an anthology of the, their anthologies of best writings from the year. Um, there's a best American sports writing, best American short stories, best American science fiction, best American mysteries stories. And I'm, I'm going to read best American essays. Those are nonfiction essays. That sounds super exciting. It is for a person who is interested in writing and reading creative nonfiction. It's very exciting. I'm excited for you. You should be. What's next in your lady life? Um, so this year for Thanksgiving, I am in charge of desserts. So I have a week to practice. I'm sorry. Can we just clarify? Your husband used to be a professional pastry chef. Is that correct? No, he was a sous chef. Oh, But he okay. did pastries as a side thing. But someone put you in charge of dessert? My mom. What is your husband in charge of? Yeah, that's a great question. <laughs> oh, I'm sure his family will give him something to bring to his, but my mom put me in charge of what we're bringing to my families. Why don't you just get your husband to do it for you? Because you're a strong, independent woman and you can do it yourself. And I have a week and a half to practice. Oh, what are you going to make? Pie? I'm going to try to make an apple pie and some kind of a spice cake. Okay, apple pie is not very thanksgiving but whatever. Go. Thank you for listening to this episode of Profess Hers, our podcast about seeing movies, culture, and history through our lady eyes. I'm Misty, and from Stories from Suffragette City, I want to recommend that you read The Runaway. And I'm Allegra. My favorite story from the collection is The Last Mile, but I obviously recommend all of them. We'd love to hear from you, what you thought about today's episode, what you would like us to discuss in future episodes, or how great you think we are. Which is extremely great. To connect with us, you can follow us on Twitter at Professors, P-R-O-F-E-S-S-H-E-R-S, or by email, same address, professors at gmail.com. Thank you to everyone who has been listening, commenting, liking, and reviewing our podcast. Please keep doing all those things, and we hope you recommend our podcast to a friend. And remember... Read this book. It's Stories from Suffragette City, edited by Fiona Davison and MJ Rose. <laughs>